The Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies Program would like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional, unceded, ancestral homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. We hope that as we continue to facilitate these conversations about Asian diasporic communities, we also engage in critical dialogue about what it means to be uninvited guests and settlers on these lands. Welcome to episode 11 of the Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies ACAM podcast. My name is Isa Yu. I'm the multimedia production assistant at ACAM and I'll be your host for this episode. We hope that this interview series can be a way to continue building connections between ACAM students, staff, faculty, and community partners, while also providing our community members with a platform to share similar work they've been doing during this time. Our guest this week on the podcast is Emi Sasagawa, author and director of communications at UBC Faculty of Arts. We sat down for a chat about her debut novel, Adam Waite, writing with empathy and intersectionality within queer Asian womanhood. Let's take a listen. Thank you so much for joining me today. To start, you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yes, uh, my name is Emi Sasagawa. Uh, I'm a settler. Uh, writing, working, and living on the ancestral and stolen lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, uh, also known today as East Vancouver. As the Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies program, we're always interested in hearing about people's own experiences of migration. So could you tell us a bit more about your and your family's migration story? Yeah, of course. Um, That in and of itself is a bit of a loaded question. Uh, I'm mixed. So on my mom's side, um, I'm Brazilian with some Lebanese heritage. And on my dad's side, I'm Japanese. Uh, My parents met really young when my dad was doing an exchange program in Brazil. And they fell in love, um, got married and uh, moved shortly after to Japan, uh, where they lived for a few years before being uh, transferred to Brazil. So I was born in Rio um, and then lived in Brazil until about the age of 13 when, due to my dad's job, we were moved to Panama City, lived there for a few years. That's where I learned English and Spanish. And then we moved to Amsterdam in the Netherlands for a few years. Um, I went to university and did my undergrad in London, uh, in the UK. Uh, Once I was done, I returned to Brazil for two years to work as a journalist, and then I came to Canada. So I guess my migration story is a little bit complicated. Um, My mom's side of the family has lived in Brazil for multiple generations, and um, my dad's side of the family, as far as we know, has lived in Japan for multiple generations. On my dad's side, Actually, my sister and I are the first mix. Um, So uh, up until us, it seems uh, our family had strictly married into other Japanese families. Thank you for sharing. In what ways do you think that history has influenced your work, both work in communications and journalism, but also your writing? Yeah, I think when I was younger, it was really difficult to... um, be uprooted every few years, especially being somewhat of an introvert, Um, making connections and making friends didn't come naturally to me. Um, And so 
change was something that was difficult for me to deal with. Um, but we humans are very adaptable. And I think these experiences have certainly pushed me outside of my comfort zone and made me sort of rethink um, how I see myself and how I see my place in the world. Um, by virtue of being mixed as well, I think I've always interpreted my identity as being relative to the people that surround me. And so when I'm around my Brazilian family, for example, I never quite feel Brazilian enough. Um, and so sometimes I tend to lean in more on my dad's heritage. Um, when I am with a group of Japanese friends, for example, I don't speak the language fluently. Um, I certainly don't look fully Japanese. And so I tend to lean in um, my Brazilian heritage. And so um, I think the experience, since it's certainly my ethnic and cultural background, um, allow me to adapt to situations and understand things from a variety of perspectives, or at least I hope I do, uh, I attempt to anyway. And I think that's been really valuable, both in terms of the way I approach journalism, the way I approach my day-to-day -day work uh, in communications at UBC, but also the way that I write. I think I write from a place of curiosity and um, trying to answer questions as opposed to um, writing towards like a specific statement. I don't start my work uh, feeling like I already know the answer. It is very exploratory and I do allow curiosity to sort of lead the way. So as you are the director of Arts Communications, and I heard that you've been very involved in the planning and development of Acre, can you tell me a little bit more about your work in that? Yeah, so um, I have been working at UBC for, I guess, close to eight years now, uh, shortly I, after I graduated from my Master's of Journalism. Um, I've had a number of different communications-related roles, and recently, as of November 2022, I took on the role of Director of Communications for the Faculty of Arts. Uh, one of the more interesting aspects of the job and um, one of the things that actually attracted me to apply for the role in the first place was the faculty's commitment to uh, anti-racism, justice, equity, and inclusion. And I felt like in my role, I would have uh, plenty of opportunities to uh, make contributions in those areas. And these are areas that are very important to me um, because of my lived experience, but also uh, because of my values and how I uh, hope to, leave my, to live my life. Um, the work with Acre has been incredibly rewarding. I was first uh, involved uh, with um, the work being done by ACAM and NSERC and um, uh, folks related to these programs and, and um, initiatives with the National Forum on Anti-Asian Racism, which was hosted by UBC back in 2021. I was brought in um, as a communications consultant and then later asked to co-moderate a panel. Um, and it was just such a rewarding um, experience. I've always felt really welcome 
uh, by the Asian Canadian community, even though the term Asian Canadian for me is so complex. I'm technically not, you know, fully Asian. I'm technically also not Canadian. Um, I am permanent resident. And so um, I just felt embraced by this generosity and it, it, it extended beyond the national forum and I was invited to uh, take part in a number of other projects and initiatives and eventually to uh, be part of the Acre Advisory Group. So um, I just feel really thankful um, to have a voice of somebody who has a very complex, um, as you put it, migration story um, to, to still be able to be involved and to um, like share my perspectives as somebody who a lot of the times feels like they're sitting on the outside. So, um, yeah, my experience working with Acre has been um, amazing and informative of also the work that I do uh, within the Faculty of Arts, but also the work that I do writing. So I think it's been uh, a great opportunity for me. I realize it might be helpful if we explain what Acre is. So do you mind doing yes. that? ACRE stands for the Center for Asian Canadian Research and Engagement. Uh, it is um, a center that exists within the University of British Columbia. And um, the mandate of the center is to address historical and ongoing anti-Asian racism and its intersectional manifestations. Uh, the center uh, is focused and upholds the principle of for our communities, by our communities. And um, it views uh, Asian Canadian and Asian diasporic bodies of knowledge as key actors in knowledge production and mobilization on issues of importance to our communities. You also have a new book coming out. For our readers, can you give us a synopsis of your new release, Adam Waite? Yes, so um, I guess you can't really see this, but um, Adam Waite is my debut novel. Um, it's been five years in the making and it tells the story of Aki, um, an Asian uh, Canadian woman uh, who is by all accounts described as a good girl, good student and good daughter. Uh, she's always done what uh, her family uh, expects and once she goes off to university in the UK and she's far away from her Vancouver home, uh, she begins to um, figure out what her identity through, truly is and adjust to life in London. Uh, she studies, she makes friends, and then um, she begins a relationship with a closeted Asian woman. Um, though life is demanding, Aki is doing her best to cope until a violent incident triggers an unexpected response in her. Uh, and when she discovers that brutal bar fighting relieves her stress, she begins a dangerous dual existence, um, obedient and accommodating by day and brawling by night. Um, so really what I hope to do with this novel is to um, explore the need to reconcile competing cultures, traditions, and values, and um, think through sexual identity, gender, and violence. Um, through a lens of oppression and privilege and, and, and really answer um, some big, well, try, attempt to answer some big questions about the space that we take up in the world and what that means.
when you say um, in your approach, you like to write towards questions. What question did you have or what questions did you have in mind when you were writing this novel? I think the key question that I had was when you are queer and you go through the experience of coming out, you often feel like you're dealing with two separate identities of yourself. One that is how people have known you and the expectations that they've made around who you are. And then the second identity, which you're discovering yourself, which at times feels a lot more authentic, but it's also new and young and in the making. What I wanted to do with this novel was try to understand why we think of these two identities as competing and this transformation as a um, very clear-cut process. I used to be this person, now I'm this other person. Um, and I wanted to explore the intense emotions that we have as queer people when we are coming out. And a lot of it is frustration, sadness, but also anger. Um, as a woman, especially an Asian woman, the expectation is that we're very, like we're demurred. Uh, we don't express anger in a very um, external, like tangible way. And so I really wanted to think back on how I could challenge some stereotypes while asking the question of what does it mean to be mixed? What does it mean to be queer? What does it mean to, to amongst all of those things, to still have um, socioeconomic privilege maybe, or um, to be able to speak English without an accent, or uh, to be educated, right? And so I think a lot of the times, um, folks uh, of a racial, racialized background are put into these boxes. And especially being a mixed person, it's always felt to me like I had to pick between being one thing or another. So I get to pick between being Brazilian, which is the assumption that I'm an outgoing extroverted. Um, I, you know, might be really comfortable with my body, etc. And then the expectation that maybe I'm at lean toward more towards my dad's side of the family, Japanese, I'm really good at math, or I'm very um, intellectual or rational, etc. And um, I feel that in not allowing people to be all of the things that they truly are, and um, splitting their existence, whether that be through the queer experience or through the experience of being racialized, um, it's also a way of like controlling anybody that doesn't fit the norm. Mm -hmm. I'm really struck by the complexity and the nuance within this book and the ideas that you explore in terms of like intersectionality within class and race and sexuality. And so how did you navigate the different kinds of dynamics between the different groups um, within the story? There's a certain level of compassion and empathy and humility that you need to have in order to write from a place that maybe isn't doesn't completely align with your own experience of the world and just an understanding that it is 
the expression or the experience of one person or one character going through this journey but there's a multitude of ways also of coming out there's a multitude of ways of dealing with being mixed raced um certainly um i think as most people who write even if they write fiction there's elements of it that i drew from my personal life uh from people that i've met and people that have um changed the way that i view the world and experience things, uh, what I think for the better. Um, and so I I tried to deal with these interactions and, and the conversations around these topics of class and race and socioeconomic status and queerness with a lot of care. It's for me, it, even if the characters themselves aren't real people in the world, um, I treat it as if they were and I wanted to carry their stories with as much care and uh, compassion as I possibly could. And um, it was never my intention to have any uh, character re like a bad person or the, the bad character in the book. Everybody has a reason why they're acting and existing in a certain way, whether that's um, because of your background or the expectations that your family or society puts on you I think it's an understanding that our existence is much more ample than we allow it to be just by choosing to be good or bad or um, you know um, passive or aggressive etc yeah I think this kind of like framing and language um, around like good or bad is especially strict when it comes to people were from I don't necessarily love this term but like from marginalized groups because there's the expectation that you also want to represent the group in a good way and I I would were there pressures around that or considerations and that when you were navigating the writing for sure yeah for sure I think you know if that's a feeling that we as racialized people and we as people uh, identifying with historically marginalized groups go through on a regular basis, certainly these were uh, things on my mind as I was writing the book. Um, I, I wanted to ensure that, um, again, the book is being told from the perspective of a person and allow as much as possible for the audience, the reader, to get a sense of what's going through Aki's head and Aki's body, how she's experiencing uh, moments. Um, uh, you know, when, when we're dealing with people day to day, we don't get to see that. We don't get to have like a peek into how somebody might be feeling about a particular reaction. We can extrapolate, we can try to guess, um, but I think it, it does a lot to make, to humanize a character and to humanize someone, to be able to um, get into their head and, and to experiencing things from their perspective. Um, I, there's always a worry that um, the way that you write a particular character will be used to sort of justify a stereotype or a preconceived notion that somebody has about um, an ethnic group, a cultural background, a um, migrant population, um, 
a religious group, etc. And so uh, I think that's in some way a risk that you run by telling stories about or writing stories about um, marginalized communities. But I think that the intended audience for the work was always one that would see it beyond that. It's not that any one of these characters are representative of a of a group, but they are their own individual person. And it's not that Aki is representative of everybody who's mixed or Asian and Latina. Um, it's really, this is Aki's experience. And I hope the book gets that across. Mm -hmm, for sure. What I found really refreshing was that Aki is very flawed and like not in a bad way, but Aki is flawed. Aki is like making mistakes or like, yeah, what, what could be described as mistakes. Um, and it's really refreshing because it's sort of, I, I imagine you would still have considered this when you were writing, but it sort of feels like the kind of expectations around good or bad representation are kind of thrown out the window and you really get to see Aki as a person and as a character instead of a kind of poster board for what good representation should be. Yeah, for sure. And I, uh, you know, growing up, even being mixed, I struggled a lot with the model minority myth. Um, I, I was born in Brazil and in Brazil, like in the context of Brazil, I do... I was always categorized as being Japanese, even though in Japan they would always consider me mixed or probably sometimes confused as um, Southeast Asian on account of being brown. Um, but these expectations about what it means to sort of represent a whole community and how you know, good you have to be when good is defined by someone other than yourself um, was something that I really wanted to explore here. And Aki, I think what she struggles with the most is she had done all of the things that would have made her a good girl, a good student, a good daughter, a good friend by all accounts. And yet that was killing her inside a little bit because she wasn't being authentic to herself. And then when she finally comes out, that one little bit of question mark for her family um, is suddenly reason enough to sort of revisit, am I a good person? It's like this idea that if you're not 100% perfect, um, that suddenly you've opened yourself up for all of this criticism and all of this negativity. And I think um, in in some ways that is the experience of being a racialized person. You know, you do everything by the book to sort of be the example of what a racialized person is, whether that's in the workplace, in your personal life, in your relationships uh, with people. And then there might be that one thing that maybe doesn't quite fit that stereotype. And suddenly, like, um, you sort of go down the spiral of am I even like a good person at all right and I think this um this over criticism of who we are is sort of ingrained in our experience of the world because we've been trying to fit in and we've been trying to sort of 
fly under the radar a lot of the time, especially as Asian people, uh, and just be good and be as close to as close to whiteness as possible. So, um, yeah. Thinking about violence within this story, can you tell us more about your considerations around that and the kind of, hmm, I'm trying to figure out how I would word this. I think I really, there are two quotes that I really, really liked, um, if I may read them out. I think it was like wondering what would compel someone to want to hurt another person on purpose. And then also I waited patiently to reach the age of violence. And so what role does violence serve in this larger journey of Aki in this story? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think as a, as a woman, you know, I've always been told, whether by my family or people around me, that violence was not something that was acceptable in my realm of existence. Um, and even to stretch that further, um, that anger displayed in a very aggressive way was not something that was available to me as an expression of my emotions. And so when I would get angry as a child, I was always told, you know, like you have to sort of deal with it yourself, like bottle it, you know, shove it down and just um, react to things in a way that is as calm as possible. Um, while I saw, for example, my cousins who were male have the opportunity to express that anger in a much more aggressive way and get away with it. And so I was really interested with this book in exploring that, what it meant for a woman, um, an Asian woman, um, which sometimes has that added level of like, oh, they're very quiet, they're very submissive, et cetera. Um, for, for an Asian woman to really take that, take that anger and turn it into violence. I think anger can be productive. Um, it can spur change. I'm not saying that I condone the way in which, you know, Aki turns that anger into violence, but I think for the purposes of this book, it was important for that anger and that frustration and all of, all of those emotions that had been bottled up over, you know, close to two decades to be expressed in a tangible way. Um, and the second quote that you mentioned, which is uh, that I, I waited until I was old enough, like I, to reach the age of violence. Um, I think what I was hoping to speak to that is, it was my experience at least going to university, that it was the, really the first opportunity that I ever had to like, be my own self. Uh, away from my parents' <laughs> expectations and away from my family. Um, and I think in some ways it allowed me to express the emotions that I felt in a, in, in, with a lot more freedom uh, than I had ever been able to before because the people that were closest to me and that um, I was most scared about disappointing were far enough away that I could basically get away with reinventing myself in some form. And so I wanted to express that through Aki as well, that while she had been the good girl and good student and good daughter, there was also a darker part of her that she had never been able to um, 
surface, like to, to allow it to surface because of all of these expectations and, and rules that she had made for herself about following um, those expectations as well and meeting them. Mm-hmm. The sort of explosion or descent into violence at first is framed in an almost cathartic way it's it's satisfying and but then as time goes on within the story we also sort of get the feeling that this might be a self-destructive behavior in some ways for Aki am I reading this correctly what were yeah yeah I think you are you're totally reading it correctly I think anger uh and a tangible expression of anger can be cathartic. Um, being angry all the time, though, is self-destructive. And so I think there were certain moments throughout the first half of the book where that anger really allows Aki to feel like she's in control and to re-examine who she is. And it's almost like she got obsessed or addicted to the anger and it became a coping mechanism. She's angry, and then to deal with that anger, to deal with that emotional frustration, she goes and takes it out on on, uh, someone. And so it becomes self-destructive. And I think that's that's sort of like finding that balance. Anger can be productive and it can, you know, put a fire under our butts to uh, rethink what space we take in the world. They can also put a, a fire under our butts to do something about uh, how we're perceived and the injustices and inequities that we see in the world. Um, but yet, if anger is all we feel, um, it, it will destroy us. And it also is a way of being controlled, right? Like Aki wanted to regain control and yet she ends up being controlled by that anger. I think um, even when we're thinking about social movements, um, anger can be good to sort of bring people together behind a cause. If you're angry all the time, though, your existence is uh, tainted by how society perceives you. And that anger is stops being something that feeds you to sort of move forward and become something that is... That is just bogging you down. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's possible to even to to draw connections in this context between Aki's um, anger and explosion towards violence, as well as the the ways in which she approaches relationships and how that changes throughout the story. The kind of intimacy that she explores with Aisha compared to her other relationships with um, women, if if it's possible to draw parallels between that. Yeah, I think so. It's um, the unraveling of Aki, right? And so I think uh, she goes to London and suddenly she feels like she has this freedom to explore herself. And at first that freedom is exciting. Um, and she's just wrapped up in like being in love with this with this woman, with Aisha, she's wrapped up in all of the new experiences that she's having and like being able to be part of the running team and living in a city um, and getting to discover it uh, with someone. And once 
she comes out and things sort of don't go as I guess she might have hoped. Um, it's the feeling of her whole world falling apart. Um, I think a lot of queer folks experience that, especially um, when they come out to their families and, and the reaction isn't um, wholly positive. And so it's, it's the multifaceted expression of that frustration and of that um, sort of isolation that she feels. Part of it is, you know, brought on by her and part of it feels like it's imposed on her by external forces and um, it becomes impossible for her to like have a healthy life. It becomes impossible for her to, um, or at least that's how she feels, to um, get angry and be able to, you know, take a breath and control that anger. It also becomes impossible for her to um, have a healthy relationship with another woman. It all becomes about control and being able to control what's happening in her life, whether that is through the fighting or through sleeping around. Um, she wants to regain that sense of control um, and not be vulnerable again, because being vulnerable has really hurt her. Um, and it's not until she's able to realize that by doing this, she'll perpetually be isolated that uh, she's able to break that cycle. Mm-hmm. I also found it interesting that you chose to date the book in a specific moment in time while addressing themes that feel very relevant. So why 2008 or around that time? Yeah, that is kind of a nod to my own experiences. So I, too, went to the London School of Economics, and I, too, started uh, studying international relations in in 2008. And um, I find London and the UK to be an interesting place to explore race. It's a very uh, diverse city um, and one that sort of allowed me to... Um, within the story about race and gender and sexuality in the way that I wanted to. Um, and, you know, from a research perspective as well, um, it felt much more accessible to me to be able to write about a time that I lived through. So, you know, um, I certainly feel like I'm somewhat somewhat disconnected from what it feels like to be 19 uh, in 2023. Um, I I feel like I'm too old to write from that perspective right now. So it was also just a way to sort of get myself into that mind space and and, um, to evoke as I'm writing this story, some of the emotions that I felt when I was that age. Like um, I did a lot of listening to music as I was writing and really listening to music that I would have listened to in 2008. And I found that that put me in sort of the right mindset to write from that space. Um, so yeah, I think it, 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 by and large, it was kind of like a, a, um, a shortcut that I took uh, in order to be able to occupy the space of Aki when I was writing it because the book is told in first person. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that age when you're 19 or so is also when you are, when these questions are, feel very present and you're really, really searching for 
home and belonging and that also feels very present within the book. Can you tell us a bit more about your thoughts on language, for example? You know, Aki notices and comments on people's accents and languages and accents you know, have been and continue to be markers, both of difference and belonging. Yeah, for sure. I think um, as most young people, when you're, you know, placed in an unfamiliar environment. Um, so Aki was raised in Vancouver, um, Canada, and then moved to the UK, like that feeling of coming like as an outsider and sort of peering in um, I think as a, as a young person, you tend to really hone into what makes you belong and what makes you different, right? And so in some ways, like, the wealth is uh, a means through which Aki feels like she belongs in her, like, uh, closed um, circle of friends. Um, it also is a way in which there's a certain level of feeling like I don't know if I would go as far as feeling superior, but a feeling uh, that sense of belonging of this is I have the right to be here at the same time. Um, there are certainly like differences in accent. And I guess as most young people, she's trying to figure out who belongs, who doesn't belong. And what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for me to say that somebody belongs and somebody doesn't? Uh, and what does it mean for me also to belong? So it was really important for me in the novel for Aki to have multiple layers of oppression as well as privilege, because I think that's how we occupy um, our space in the world. Like we're never um, just one thing. We're never just a woman or just a queer person or just a person uh, with uh, that's educated, et cetera. We are all of those things at the same time. And um the journey of the book, like one of the key journeys of the book is Aki realizing that. Aki realizing that she's all of those things and the people around her are also all of the things that they are, right? Like um, the, the women she dates, they're not just queer women. They also have their own complicated histories and the, their own complicated positionalities. Um, and I think that's um, a sign of maturity. I certainly feel like... Um, Aki got through that and like <laughs> was able to realize that a lot quicker than I was as a young person. Uh, and I mean, it works for the book because uh, otherwise, where would we be? But um, I do think that that is crucial to the journey of a young person, especially when they go off to university or they go off to have new experiences. Yeah, there's a sense of weight to all of the characters in terms of how fleshed out they are and the the gesturing towards their lives beyond what Aki sees. Um, and there's also a sense of kind of generational legacy within the story. Um, you know, people, like when there's discussion of what families people come from, or also even Aki's conversation with her grandparents, um, what, role do our relationships with the generations before us take in our understanding of our identities now yeah exactly and um 
we are individuals that exist within a much more complex ecosystem. And um, when you're young, sometimes it's very easy to just focus in on your experience. That feels like the most important thing that's happening. And it is, right? Like you are a young person trying to figure out who you are, figure out your identity, figure out how you fit within sort of the the larger narrative of the world. And um, I think as you mature, you really begin to have this understanding of the, the connections um, and sort of that relative identity that you have in relation to the people around you. Um, I think also as, you know, child, uh, as a child of like a mixed couple um, and immigrants, you are always so aware of um, the differences, one, between your parents and then also between your family and any space that you inhabit. So for us, like once, even when we lived in Brazil, um, you know, we were a mixed family. My dad spoke Portuguese with a bit of an accent. And so there was always like a sense of like, who belongs, who doesn't belong, right? Like you're, you're this, or you're, you, you, you fall within this category. Um, and then when we moved abroad, um, certainly like living in the Netherlands, for example, where everybody seems to be, you know, tall, white and blonde, um, certainly our family didn't necessarily fit the bill. And so um, I, I do think that you tend to really think about the people that are closest to you and how you connect to them and like what you're drawing from them. It was very important to me to feel um, growing up that I was the daughter of my mother and my father and that there were aspects of their existence and their experiences that were also reflected in me. It made me feel connected and rooted in something. Um, and I think as you mature, you understand that that connection doesn't erase your ability to, or um, yeah, doesn't erase your ability to be yourself and to also make new connections to people that are maybe related to you by blood or by heritage or not. Uh, there's so many ways to belong uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just um, through bloodlines and, and, and through like racial and ethnic background. What are your takeaways from the writing and publishing process? Wow, it's hard. <laughs> um, so I started working on this when I was a student at the Writer Studio at SFU. It's a program, it's about a year long, and we would have authors come in and say, you know, I worked on this book and it was a really quick process and it took me three years. And I would think to myself, wow, three years, that's such a long time. Like, I can't really envision myself spending that long on something. How am I gonna stay focused? How am I gonna stay interested? Well, it's five years since I started working on this project and it's finally, um, you know, a thing, like a real tangible thing now. Um, it's, yeah, it was, it was a slow, uh, process, both in terms of like being able to pace my creativity, but also emotionally. I think, um, there were certain elements of the book that really touched me and that really made me think about my own experience coming out and the interactions that I had with my family. And that was really difficult. Uh, it made me realize that a lot of 
the trauma or whatever it is that you want to call it that I hadn't really properly worked through it and so I had to be generous and careful with myself um, and really listen to when I needed to take a break um, yes you know it's a 260 page book you probably could write something of that length in a few months but I don't think I would have produced what it is today. I think I needed the five years to get there and to understand what the story actually was. You just heard an interview with Emmy Sasagawa, author of the upcoming release, Adam Weight. You can find out more information on her work and obtain a copy of the book through the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was made possible by the Chan Family Foundation's generous support. If you have an idea for an episode of the ACAM podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your ideas by emailing us at acam.program at ubc.ca to be notified when the next podcast episode is released and to stay up to date on all things ACAM. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UBCACAM and like us on Facebook at Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies, UBC.